Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and we are here this week to talk about gangster films, uh, <laughs> specifically gangster films outside of the United States, non-American gangster films. Yeah. Um, you know, our two main topics, of course, uh, the triad epic that is Hong Kong's Internal Affairs Trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, one of our favorite gangster films of all time. Uh, we'll be talking about the martial arts mastery of Indonesia's The Raid Duology, uh, which doubles also as the, <laughs> the best like fighting movie or, or, or hand-to-hand combat movie of, of all time as well. Yep. Um, then we'll be del- delving into the Russian Mafia in England in Eastern Promises, uh, one of Viggo Mortensen's best roles, I might say. Mm-hmm. And um, a particular uh, dear underrated gem that is very close to my heart, uh, Australia's Animal Kingdom, um, a film that I doubt any of you have seen. Um <laughs> I watched this on a plane the first time um, 10 years ago uh, and, and I'll get into that uh, later on I'll talk about like how I first discovered this film okay. uh, but you know I, 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 these films I, I wanted to like kind of um, oh, we wanted to prove that these diverse films from all around the world Asia, Europe uh, you know and Australia and etc uh, proves that America may have invented the genre of gangster films Mm. Um, it is clearly their invention, and I don't take that away from them. You know, and America clearly has some of the best gangster films of all time. Yeah. But it does not hold a monopoly on the genre it invented. Um, it has become uh, widespread. Our gangsters are universal, uh, and you know th- these films prove it. Uh. But before we delve into like you know these four uh, amazing films, uh, let's talk a little bit about you know some of our gang favorite gangster films of all time, like, outside of the ones that you know we have uh, we are mentioning here. Um, how about you, Isa? You know, like, what are some of your favorite like gangster movies or gangster um, TV shows of all time? I, I think for me, Goodfellas, right? Uh, yeah. Ranks up there on top. Uh, mm-hmm. Godfather stuff, like, kind of can't, you know, leave that out. Yeah. Um, if you're talking like non-American stuff, I mean, obviously, City of God, which we just talked about in our last episode. 100%. Yeah. Um, Lockstock and Two Smoking and Barrels. Two Smoking Barrels, yeah. one of my favorite as well. Um, guy, Richie, yeah. yeah. Um what else? What else? What else? Yeah, I think uh what is the one with DiCaprio and uh Daniel Day? Uh Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York, yes. Uh, I really enjoyed that too. Yeah, I mean on the whole Scorsese train, right? Of course the Fellas <laughs> is is one of the best uh films uh of any genre I ever made. Yeah. Um also on on still Scorsese, like Gangsters of New York is really good. Uh, mean Streets uh, is really good, which Street. predates uh, which predates Goodfellas actually. Yeah. Um Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction from Tarantino, of course, are two mm-hmm. two big classics. Um The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, uh among the best uh, storytelling of all time, you know, regardless of medium, even you know, yeah, uh, a lot, a lot of great stuff, and all of them, you know, are American, with the exception of um, the early guy Richie stuff, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, lots of good stuff coming out of America, and the reason I didn't want to sort of like spend an hour talking about The Godfather or Goodfellas or Scarface um, and, and and things like that is because like I think a lot of people are already big fans of it. They're, they, yeah. they're such well-known films. Mm-hmm. People already know them inside and out. So, so you know, why... I wouldn't say waste time, lah, but why add on to, to such a saturated conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like given 
how I I think in own, almost any country's like uh, cinema industry, you're gonna find some form of gangster film, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're gonna find at very least you're gonna find some kind of like cop film that's gonna have like heavy gangster references, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it, it's uh, it is without a doubt that some of those are definitely gonna rise to the top as far mm-hmm. as like the quality of that is. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't like kind of like um cover some of those things. Oh, hundred percent. Um, and I think, like, especially with something like our main topic, which is Infernal Affairs, right? Like, mm-hmm. it is a magnum opus of, of sorts, right? Of the genre itself of Hong Kong gangster films, which is a yeah. genre in and of itself that is extremely popular and has been around, you know, for ages and rivaling even that of 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 what America has done mm, in terms of yeah. the breadth of things of doing just the sheer number of films. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, why not? You know, kind of dive in. Um, if you're a big fan of gangster films, right? Dive in into what other other cultures and other countries uh, have to offer for those particular narratives. Yeah. Um. Fun fact. You know, one of the first few talking movies ever made. Uh, in the nineteen in nineteen thirty one and nineteen thirty two, the first talking movies ever made mm-hmm. were dominated by gangster films. Really. Um. Yeah. The original Scarface that came out in nineteen thirty one. Oh. Uh, was a big box office hit lah back in the day. Um, Little Caesar and the Public Enemy are also two of the biggest hits of the early talking black and white cinema history. You know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. these 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 films all predate Casablanca. Uh, they they come just like one or two years after the invention of talking films. You know, <laughs> gangster films were already big back then. Yeah. Uh, and then you move on to like the fifties and the sixties. Um, the Yakuza films started taking over over in Japan. Yep. Uh, and then America took over again with uh, a guy named Martin Scorsese, uh, who grew up amongst uh, small-time Italian mafiosos and started making movies about them. Um, the reason I, met- I mentioned Martin Scorsese again is because <laughs> uh, most people know of Infernal Affairs via its remake, uh, The Departed, also mm-hmm. starring Leonardo DiCaprio, yep. um, Matt Damon, uh, Jack Nicholson, and all of that, which has its merits, of course. It, it won a, a multitude of Oscars. I think it was one of Jack Nicholson's and Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, better performances, and mm-hmm. that's saying a lot considering their history. Mm-hmm. Um, the Departed is an absolutely incredible film that is relatively faithful, actually, if you are from beat to beat to yeah. Infernal Affairs. You know? yep. um, and I might even say that like its legacy is... Um, more potent because uh, fans seem to have a divisive reaction to Inferno Affairs 2 and 3 in particular. Yeah. Uh, so like The Departed is just like you know this one neat thing that ends very well mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's a cool movie. Uh, but at the same time you, you have to acknowledge that uh, The Departed wouldn't be here without an incredible movie that came before it you know yeah. 10 years before uh, Inferno Affairs which is uh, such a monster uh, genre mashup, you know. Infernal Affairs is <laughs> is it's it's a it's a gangster movie, sure, yeah. but it's also a spy story. It's an espionage story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a detective story, you know, and it's so entertaining and so acclaimed that it, it scooped up like dozens of Hong Kong film awards, um, prizes at Cannes, you know, um, uh, awards in New York and Toronto and LA, and it's it's one of Hong Kong cinema's most defining features like, outside of, I would say, um, you know, In the Mood for Love and, and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's directed by Andrew Lau and Alan Mack. Um, the trilogy, it stars uh, Andy Lau, it stars Tony Leung uh, as moles buried deep in enemy territory, you know? Um, when the first film still opens, um, 
uh, Lau, who stars as Ming here, uh, has been in the employ of the Hong Kong Police Department for nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, Ming seems to be an exemplary detective, but in truth, he is a spy for a triad boss uh, named Sam, uh, who is, you know, uh, played by Eric Zhang, who is such a scene stealer in, in all three films. Oh, yeah. um, the police department, meanwhile, has planted its own man, his own mole, uh, named Yan, uh, played by Tony Leung, who works for Sam, but takes his orders from supervising Detective Wong, uh, played by Anthony Wong. Um, as the good guys uh, circle the bad guys and the bad guys circle back, you know, the double agents uh, navigate, you know, um, incredible plot twists, emotional complications, uh, skating over, you know, the, the story's very, like, convoluted um, plotting. Uh, with good, uh, you know, emotional drive, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 politically tinged like uh, thematics, you know, with enormous stylistic flair. Um, it's one of the most pleasurable gangster genre films uh, ever made, and it shows uh, its filmmakers' ability and willingness to push that particular genre to its limits, and and kind of tying it in with with uh, espionage um, uh, stylistics as well. Mm. Um, when did you first come across Infernal Affairs and how did it become like you know um, such a near and dear uh, trilogy to you uh, Infernal Affairs I think was one of the films that uh, I watched in the cinemas right like so growing up uh, a lot of my childhood um, consisted of watching a lot of Cantonese films like a lot of Hong Kong films you know, anything from like your traditional kind of like wuxia stuff with, with Jet Li and all of that. Uh, and then kind of graduating into the buddy cop stuff with Jackie Chan and so on and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. I think Infernal Affairs may have been one of my first few forays into the Hong Kong gangster um, mm. genre. You went into the John Woo stuff? Uh, I mean, they were the John Woo stuff was good, but uh, and I did watch a lot of them, but like Infernal Affairs really kind of took it up a notch for me in terms of like its storytelling and all that. Like, no disrespect to John Woo, he's yeah. really, really good at what he does, right? And has mm -hmm. been since since ages before. But I think Infernal Affairs and the way that that um, Lau and Mark kind of like uh, the way it's shot, the way that it's paced, you know, the the kind of like inventive nonlinear storytelling that they like to take was something yeah. that was surprising to me within this particular genre, right? Like, prior to Infernal Affairs, a lot of gangster films were very cut and dry uh, mm. in terms of the way that they wanted to do it. And we didn't... I mean, you always have, like, this whole mole thing, you know, undercover cop thing as a subplot, right? In almost any gangster film that you get from Hong Kong. Um, yes. Just because in, in, in America too, you know, Serpico and all of that. Yeah. Mm, yeah, 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 right? Just because of the kind of, like, symbiotic relationship between... Um, the police genre and the gangster genre, yeah, mm, exactly, right. Yeah. Um, but I think like this was kind of the first time where that came to the fore, uh, in the way that that they they did in Infernal Affairs, right? Like it's a very specific mm -hmm. way of going about it, um, that made it richer. I feel like, um, you know, drawing back to what you just said about the fact that it's a mashup of like so many, uh, interesting kind of like genre choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did watch this in cinemas, uh, which was strange. I think this was back when I was still in Malaysia, so I got away with sneaking in. Oh, wow, <laughs> cool. Yeah, because I, I would have still been like fairly, fairly young. Mm -hmm. with, what was it, 2002? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my thing. I kind of fell in love with that. You know, it made it... it gangster, Hong Kong gangster films before that were cool, right? Yeah. But this made it like, like mercurial like absolutely you know one of the the most like amazing things i had seen at that point in time in my life as far as this genre goes 
mm-hmm. right? Um, with Infernal Affairs 2 and 3, I mean, like, I understand people have mixed feelings about it. I do feel like 2 does add to the story itself. Yeah. Uh, 3 is a bit of a mess um, just because I think that a lot of people um, ended up watching the alternate ending Mm. Uh, for one, right, and and tr- and three continues off the original ending, yeah, uh, and it didn't have the kind of like concise, condensed um t- storytelling um that one or two had, you know, uh, mm-hmm. three w- w- was a bit more it, like it, it languished a, l- a little too much. It didn't really have the same kind of like character beats that you wanted from the two, and I I think by and large the fact that um. Tony Leung wasn't really a big part of Tree. Like, he didn't really get a lot of screen time except for the flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, kind of diminished um, the overall, like, star quality and overall acting. Like, Andy Lau is perfectly great on his own uh, mm-hmm. a- as, as um, Ming. But, like, it didn't quite have that same kind of tension, I feel. Mm. Yeah. But across the board, I, I think all three films are, are good films. One and two are, are much better, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, one is mm-hmm. great and two is good. Uh, yeah. Tree is okay, but like overall, I think as a body of work, it is a very kind of seminal piece uh, in the Hong Kong movie industry, uh, as well as like just gangster films in general, right? Like for Scorsese to be able to take Infernal Affairs and make The Departed, which despite the fact that um, it's, it is beat for beat by and large, feels like a completely different story. Mm-hmm. You know, just because the setting changes and the contact changes, and like that is so important um, to understanding like the characters in this whole new like, even though it's essentially the same story. Yeah, I mean, like essentially, if you watch The Departed and Infernal Affairs back to back, which I did recently, and uh, not not that I needed to, like, I have very good memories about both films. Like, they're <laughs> great films. Uh, you know, some of the scenes where like you know Matt Damon and Leo are like you know. Uh, texting in their pockets and stuff, stuff. It's, it's just <laughs> yeah. copied copied exactly from the initial film but it has such a different like Scorsese has such a different style yeah. right you know mm. the, the vibe is so different the, uh, the, the thick Irishness in, in the department <laughs> makes it make it makes it so different from Hong Kong right you know yeah. um, you know the, the whole like uh, the, the Boston accent uh, has, has been like parodied to death la, but it kind of like uh, got kickstarted you know with like the Dropkick Murphys uh needle drop that um, Scorsese like uses abundantly and everything it really sets it apart from Infernal Affairs uh. mm-hmm. um, but I do feel that in- Infernal Affairs you know just by being first uh, creating the story and everything is a little bit superior in terms of the plotting yeah 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 sure. um, and I re- what, one of my favorite pleasures of the film is you know besides like as- the espionage genre being one of my favorite um, tropes in film you know um, spy versus spy like, essentially uh, is the is the spycraft involved in this? You know, mm. I really I really enjoyed how the logistics of uh, both uh, moles and and how they go about spying for for each team Yeah. Um. And I also really enjoyed the surrogate uh, son relationships that both uh, moles have to their father figures. You know, one yeah. is in the triad and one is in the the police department. You know, um. That really adds a level of emotional uh, depth to it that mm-hmm. I really love uh, and also like you know the, the idea that like you know you're clearly supposed to root for one guy over the other yeah but <laughs> at the same time I, I do I do feel for both sides too lah, you know um, I, I get it you know like one guy both actually have been have been brainwashed you know uh, into doing things that they don't actually really want to do and one guy is kind of semi uh, the guy inside the cops you know kind of wants to turn over a new leaf in the end as well yeah. you know 
um, it's it's really really great. Um, Inferno of S two I think is you know a, a better console as prequel. Yeah. Uh, that 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 gives you a backstory into into their father figures essentially, mm. right? You know. Mm. Uh, and in that way, it also has kind of a similar beat for beat, uh, cat and mouse, uh, game between between Sam and uh, and the police superintendent, right? Yeah. Uh, that that kind of carries over from the first film. So although it's a different plot, it's a different timeline, it's a prequel, it still feels like Infernal Affairs. Yeah. Um, that's that's why I feel like Infernal Affairs 3 um, became so divisive, you know, mm. or, or felt so disappointing to fans. Um, it's a bit like The Godfather 3 of, of <laughs> Infernal Affairs, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's a bit... Uh, it has multiple flashbacks. I think that the slow motions uh, is kind of like a bit... Uh, overdone mm. uh and, and and stuff like that but but i do i must say right like although the character beats were different infernal affairs 3 was the only infernal affairs movie i feel to not be plot driven it mm. is an entirely character driven story about paranoia and yeah. regret and guilt uh and in fact it is a psychological thriller uh, playing inside one person's head, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's, it's sopra- soprano esque in 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 that way. Yeah. Um, and I think it 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 it's evokes, you know, one of uh Andy Lau, right? Yeah, Andy Lau. Uh, and it, it evokes one of his better performances of of his career. Yeah. Because he just gets to delve deep into a very very meaty kind of thing, whereas the other movies, uh, the characters were doing things. I'm not going to say entirely uh, plot devices, but yeah. they kind of were, lah. You, yeah. <laughs> you know, like Infernal Affairs 3 was the first one where you really get to delve into the psyche of one of them. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of appreciated that, like, And I really appreciated the ballsiness of them doing such a um, ridiculously artsy film. Oh, yeah. Uh, to, to, to follow up, you know, to essentially like pop fiction-y films. Uh. Yeah. Uh, and, and because, like, I kind of admired the ballsiness of it, I think watching it as an adult now recently... I have come to appreciate Inferno Affairs three more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know about you. How, how do you how do you, how has your opinion changed on, on Inferno Affairs three? It ha- it definitely has, right? Like I I do have a better appreciation for Lau's performance this time rewatching this time round. Um, yeah. Just because I feel like I've never taken him very seriously as an actor. Uh, you know, of course, you know his singing career and all of that was like kind of like the mainstay for many many years. Being one of the four yep. heavenly kings, right? Uh, and and Tony Leung to me is is a superior actor, right? So I I think the first time round when I watched Inferno Affairs Three, I was a bit more in the camp. Oh, I wish I kind of wish we dealt more into um, Ming's story instead of Yan's story. Uh, yeah. But um, I the turning point for me where I was utterly convinced is when he has that like uh superior Spider Man moment where he kind of like uh. uh assumes the identity of 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 um, Ming, you know, like where he, yes. he kind of like has that how would you like the yeah he 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 subsumes Ming's identity, right? Yeah, he was own... possessed by the idea that the guilt has driven him to want to become a good person and, yeah. and he takes after Ming, like, you know? Yeah. And and I think that moment, um watching that kind of like especially the initial sequence, right, where when you kind of see like that whole uh um that whole whole scene with with the lights and 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 the camera panning and all of that, like I'm just like, okay, you know what? Like this is really good. This mm-hmm. this was a turn that I don't think I had the maturity, as far as like cinema watching goes, to appreciate when I first watched it. Mm. Uh, and having having seen how the treatment changed for the characters in Departed, uh, having 
uh, red superior Spider-Man, right? Like this whole mm-hmm. idea of, you know, like um, the the assumption of somebody else's consciousness, right? Because of your own emotional turmoil was actually very well done. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it is definitely the most artsy of the three for sure, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, despite the fact that fans didn't necessarily think that it fit, uh, it's still good, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it adds like a great epilogue to, to the whole story. La. And I, I, one of the minor complaints I have about Infinite Affairs 1 and 2, which I ideally loved, is it's sort of like the lack of uh, depth of the characters. Not to say yeah. that they are poorly written, but it is entirely plot-driven. La, and I think yeah. it's fair to say that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think fans kind of wanted more of that plotting, you know, the grand intrigue, you know, the criminal politics, the triple crosses, the quadruple <laughs> crosses, you know. Uh, and, and the stories of the two men are quite personal yeah. uh, with each other and with their father figures and with their love interests and all that. But it's, they do things to further the plot. And in, in, in Final Fantasy 3, it felt like entirely like, what is this guy going through? He's only doing things. Uh, there's a level to, of autonomy to the character uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Mm. And, you know, I, I, the artsiness of it, I same, similar to you, like watching it in 2020. Uh, I, I, I watched rewatched the trilogy last year. I watched it uh, in 2020. My reaction to Infinite Warfare 3 was so different <laughs> from when I watched it like in 99 or 2003 or whenever it was, like, you know, yeah. like, late 90s, early 2000s uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, you know. Uh, yeah, and and it's it's. I think maturity has a lot to do with appreciating Infinite Warfare Three. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to say it's as good as the first one or two, but I do feel like uh, there is more merit to it than I initially uh, thought. Yeah, agreed. Definitely changed my mind this time round. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I I think it was it it was such you know like you say it's such a bold move, and it's very interesting that they decided to go in that direction. Uh, yeah. Just because, like, it's so easy. They could have taken the exact same thing that they did in three, and you know, just tacked on more plot to it, tacked on more, more, you know, kind of like tension to that. Uh, but what we never got in the first two, and I think is something that I appreciate more, is that we actually get some kind of wrap up, right? Mm-hmm. For at least one of the particular stories, uh, I, I think one of the biggest kind of like tragedies is that we never ever get to experience um Tony Leong's kind of like internal struggle as Ming in the first film. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's a big like is a big thing for me. And I think like Sean Yue was competent as a young um Yen, right? Yeah, okay. Like like since you're on that, right? What do you think about like the the two actors? Edison Chen was the other one, right? Yeah. Uh who played the younger versions of both characters in Infernal Affairs. Yeah. Like did you did you enjoy their performances? Uh I didn't mind them so much because Two isn't about them, right? Yep. Two isn't about them at all. Like uh, Eric Sang as Sam is such an amazing character, right? He's almost the star, right? Yeah, he's he's essentially the star. Like I think it's a toss up between him and Karina Lau, who absolutely steals every scene that she's in. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I really really enjoy that kind of like to and fro, especially uh, what's the actor mm-hmm. who played Nai? Um, uh, how is Francis Ng? Mm. Francis Ng is absolutely terrifying in the film uh, in the second one so I feel like it's okay they did an okay job like they did their job as far as like the young versions of these guys go I mean Mm -hmm. Edison Chen and and Sean Rhea will have never kind of like reached the same kind of heights right acting prowess as Andy Lau or Tony Leong for sure Um, but it was sufficient and Mm -hmm. I didn't mind it um, because I understood that 
Eric Tang and, and Francis Ng and, and Karina Lau were like the real stars of that show. Oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, like they're not nearly as good as Andy Lau and and, and Tony Leung, but you know, they did an okay job where my suspension of disbelief wasn't taken away. Yeah. Um, the f- first film is nearly perfect in every way in terms of the plotting, the double mm. crosses, the spycraft logistics, your emotional engagement, twists that you just never see coming. You know, um, and I and in Final Fest too, I think while there is a bit of diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, following Sam and the and the police superintendent, uh, is also very fun. <laughs> and you get you get to see like you know um, the interactions and the politics of you know low level mod bosses like mid level mod bosses high yeah. level how do you how do you climb that ladder la, you know and how do you uh, create uh, the well I mean not to quote Littlefinger like, create the chaos that you need to <laughs> um, climb that ladder you know yeah. uh, and and Sam is just so good at playing you know that game mm. you know, the, the the political game the the double crossing the triple crossing you know but at the same time he also has a level of vulnerability to him uh with his family and everything that I really really enjoyed yeah. uh he is one of the better like anti-heroes la, I've seen in, in in Hong Kong cinema where I almost sort of like through sheer force of charisma of the character of the actor's performance yeah. I was like rooting for him over the cops you know yeah I, I mean he has like this uh, it it gets established I feel in that in that scene in the very beginning scene of the second film actually right like where yeah, the relationship sitting, you know, right yeah where they're sitting down at the at the in the, in the interrogation room and Sam's just eating you know and, and yeah. all of that which is of course a throwback to mm-hmm. to an earlier scene in the first film yeah um uh, which is kind of great I, I think like uh Eric Eksang's like performance as Sam in two is just like far more enriching mm. um, to his character than what we got in the first one. Like he's already established in the first one, right? Uh, but for them to be able to kind of break down like his his origin, well, essentially it is an origin story. Yeah. It's an origin story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's better call Saul esque. Yeah, 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 and it's so good. It's so good. There's so many scenes, right, where it's just like absolutely the the part where he sits down to eat hot pot with the other bosses, right? It's one of my favorite from the from the second film, you know, yeah. just the way like everything pans out, the kind of like subtle facial expressions that you know they're throwing around, and Eric is just, you know, just having the kind of time of his life, you know, being smug and all of that. It's it's so good. It oh, really, man. really is so good. I I would even go as far as to say like Eric Sung's uh, performance in two is probably the best performance in all three films. I agree, definitely, hands yeah. down, hands down. Like in in like, I. As much as I love Tony Long and Andy Lau, right? Um, for all the things that they have done, like Eric Tang just like kind of steals the show, and then a close second for me is Karina Lau. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Everybody else just kind of takes a back seat, and I'm not really sure what it is exactly. Is it the fact that they they actually got a lot more screen time? Uh, overall, obviously Eric Tang gets the most amount of screen time across like the three, mm-hmm. the three movies. Karina Lau only the second one, and a bit of like flashback for the third one, but. You know, I, I don't know if it's because like he gets the most amount of screen time and therefore his character becomes the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh and for like um Andy Lau's character, like you only really get that in the third in the third film. Yes, you know. Um in in the end, right, like Infernal Affairs is probably the definitive Hong Kong gangster film. Yeah, for sure. Um the Hong Kong gangster genre is its own thing, it's become its own monster, right? And there is nothing out there better than Infernal Affairs, the Infernal Affairs trilogy, uh, uh, in terms of that genre. And 
like if you enjoyed The Departed, and I know a lot of you, a lot of you have seen The Departed. It's a very popular film. I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't see the source material to mm. it, uh, because in 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 many ways it is superior to The Departed. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that The Departed didn't improve on certain aspects, but I'm yeah. saying like o- overall, uh, like I think Inferno Affairs is better than The Departed, uh, which is no diss to The Departed, as I said, like it's a great film, mm-hmm. uh, with great performances. But Inferno Affairs is like you know, has it has has that itch to it, has the has a cultural, I think, um uh the 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 the, the delving into like the Hong Kong gangster yeah. culture. The, yeah, um, is the culture more interesting. Uh. Yeah, yeah, the specificity of it is yeah. extremely charming. Uh mm-hmm. and I, I think what is because uh, Scorsese has I mean Scorsese has his own style, right? Like to see the story in a style that's not Scorsese's, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I think Lau and Monk established a very unique kind of um, cinematographic, uh, like visual style over the three mm-hmm. films, right? That is very unique to Inferno Affairs. Um, yeah. Um, actually, um, actually, Wong Kar Wai's uh, cinematographer, Christopher Doyle, actually uh, served as the cinematographer for the Inferno Affairs film, uh, which gives it that, that unique uh, Hong Kong look. Yeah. Yep. You know, when, when you think of Hong Kong, right, you're thinking of Christopher Doyle's lensing. Like, this <laughs> is the guy that you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to Hong Kong, like uh, I went to Hong Kong for like a Mew show, like in in like the mid twenty fifteen or some shit, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I saw Hong Kong, like my eyes were like glazed <laughs> over with with um Wong Kar Wai and and Inferno Affairs lens. Like, it's like ooh ooh, this is where this is where all that happens. Yeah, yeah. It yeah, is a very, very specific look. Yeah. Um. That that inhabits like the mind your mind when you have watched enough kind of like Hong Kong films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, man. Uh, one of the best gangster films of all time. It's it's a triple bill. All three of these films, uh, you know, is is a double agent uh, buffet uh, with quadruple crosses uh, up the wazoo. Um, <laughs> it is. It's it's a it's a film that will continually films that will continually keep you guessing uh, as to the plot. And the third film, I think, um, if you are into that, you know, is a really riveting psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, if if you come in with correct expectations. Yeah. Um, which is why I feel like the Infernal Affairs uh, trilogy uh, is very strong uh, from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and best to watch uh, all of them. You know, I'm not just I'm not just going to recommend one. Like, I think all yeah. three of them are yeah. worth a watch. Yeah. Would Would you suggest for people to watch it chronologically, because um, I've seen I've seen a I've seen arguments for that, right? Meaning you watch two first before you watch one and then three. One of the biggest reasons three uh one of the biggest reasons I think um two Inferno Affairs two uh angered me when I first watched it. It's because I wanted Inferno Affairs two to be a continuation of the story. Yeah. Uh, Inferno Affairs three is actually Inferno Affairs two. Yeah. Um, you, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, so. Like maybe it, it 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 is worth trying that chronology. I've never personally tried it, so I don't know how it works. Yeah, so I did it this round. Yeah, okay. Um it, it definitely evokes kind of like a different feeling, right? Because I'm not a stranger to this, but I don't know if you should mm. uh, recommend it to someone who's never caught Inferno Affairs before. Right? Like yeah. I would I, I think it's still best to catch it in the way that it was released. So you do one, two, three. And then if you enjoy it enough and you want to see what it feels like on second watching, then you can do two, one, three, you know? Yes, 100%. Um, in the same way, like, I would never recommend someone watch uh, Saul before Breaking Bad. First. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know? There's yeah. not enough oh, context yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, like, for your first viewing, watch one, two, three, and then uh, two, one, three. 
uh, in your second just to try it out I, even I, I feel like trying it out now it seems like an interesting exercise yeah I, I think for me this time around like I just you just see a lot more of the way that the plot flows right just because you're going to see Cole and then the actual thing and then going on with that it mm-hmm. feels different I think especially because the only real like character that you see consistently over all three films is you know um, Edison Chen slash, slash Andy Lau's character right like yeah. that is fascinating if you watch it in chronological order, um, just to kind of like chart how he grows and becomes who he is by the time you hit the... So the pathos that you feel while he is struggling with his guilt in the third film feels a bit more like prominent if you watch mm-hmm. it chronologically. But outside yeah. of that, uh, I mean like the Eric Tang uh, character growth over one and two is also very fascinating. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it, it becomes a bit more character focused, I feel, if you watch it chronologically. Uh, for these two characters in in particular. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, agree with that uh, all the way. Uh, Infernal Affairs, highly, highly recommend that you watch it if you like The Departed. Uh, and if you haven't seen The Departed, actually, I would recommend that as well. Uh, yeah, so for like, sure. I, I would include that in the Infernal Affairs quadrology. It's the Infernal <laughs> Affairs 4, Boston. Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Uh yeah, um let's move on to uh a, a different part of Asia. In fact, our our side of Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh let's go to Indonesia where we'll be talking about the raid duology, which is technically a gangster film because it's about <laughs> gangsters. Uh but the raid one, uh subtitled The Raid Redemption, uh is primarily best known as the greatest fighting martial arts movie of all time. Yeah. Uh it is this hyper energetic Indonesian martial arts movie directed by Gareth Evans that I think uh, when when it came out delivers an effective like rebuke to to Hollywood style action. Mm. You know, the, the, the shaky cam, the 12 yeah. cuts to show uh, Liam Neeson climbing over a fence and that kind of thing. Uh, like they're, they're hiding, they're hiding things, you know, via, via quick cuts and shaky cam. Yeah. Uh, in, in American films, you know. Um, when The Raid came out, it totally revolutionized uh, action filmmaking in Hollywood, you know, um, movies like Dread and, and, and John Wick would not be here if not for the raid, you know. Yeah. Um, how the how Gareth Evans specifically has made a strong case for this genre as a as a kinetic means of illustrating like precise, uh, precise movements, mm-hmm. uh, physicality, uh, and vibrancy, you know, by just pulling out the camera and showing you everything. Uh, with like great choreographers, with great stunt workers, with great martial artists, you don't need to hide anything. Just show everyone everything, you know. Um, and and that is kind of the legacy of of the raid films, you know, uh, specifically the raid one la, which is just a very nice self contained story. Yeah. About about a uh, essentially a SWAT team breaking into a, an an apartment complex that is run by a gang, uh, and they have to you know move up the levels to the boss like a video game. Uh, yeah. Fight everyone in some of the most brutal explosive violence cool like <laughs> fuck just absolutely fucking cool fights that you've ever seen you know yeah uh that that doesn't actually feel too unrealistic you know it's not mm-hmm. like a superhero type of fight yeah uh, there is a there, there is a level of stylization and heightenedness to it la. but it is still like a great depiction of you know um silat martial arts and, and other martial arts as well you know mm-hmm. uh more more of the traditional martial arts la. um before we delve into the Raid 2, which is more of a gangster epic, like, uh, do you remember watching the Raid 1 and what do you think about it? It blew my mind because yeah. I did not expect to have a martial arts epic come out of mm. Indonesia, right? 
and and so well via British director, via, Welsh director, yeah, yeah. via via <laughs> an Angmore director, yeah. right? Um, with the stylistic flair that you would get from art house cinema, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Like this wasn't even like Hollywood big action cinema. This was like art house cinema, and I think like Evans did such a great job with that. I I feel like we owe so much of the amazing camera work and martial arts scenes that we get in in the stuff that we love today right yeah so i mean john wick for example or even like that um netflix's daredevil like i feel like it owes so much to this movie right mm. um that you know you can't you can't kind of take away from that right so i'm i'm really curious to see um you know how that continues to kind of like influence um future upcoming like martial arts things like shang chi for example mm. um which looks really good in the trailer and and kind of has like a similar vibe, right? Like it's all about the the body in movement and capturing that in its essence as opposed to like, you know, Michael Bay, Explosion, Explosion, Shaky Cam, or even Scorsese, for example, right? Mm, or uh, even like Taken, you know? Like, uh, like Taken was like a fight film too, you know? Yeah. But the way that it was shot, you know, from weird angles, multiple quick cuts, it, you're hiding the physicality of the actors mm-hmm. because... You know that like Liam Neeson can't actually do that. You know, yeah. Like exactly. all these guys are doing it. You're you're doing it. It's not cutting. It's not clever yeah. editing. You're yeah. watching it before your eyes. Just impressive physicality. Yeah. Uh, it's so bruising and it's so brilliant. Uh, one of the things that I was actually, especially when I was uh um, you know, just looking up interviews and stuff like for for these two raid movies, is the fact that the physicality that we see on screen isn't even like the the full physicality of the 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 actors and the stunt performers themselves a lot of the mm-hmm. time they actually had to slow down their strikes so it yeah. could be captured on camera and that's kind of insane right like mm-hmm. uh these are athletes and 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 martial artists of the highest order uh within their craft you know and and they have to like bring it down just so like you know plebs like us watching it on the screen can actually see what's going on and mm-hmm. that's that's just kind of mind blowing I, I i definitely enjoy this kind of um uh, choreography a lot more and cinematography a lot more than what we've gotten in the past when it came to these martial arts stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it, it, indeed. Like, I, I also noticed the same thing when I saw the BTS and stuff, right? Mm. Like, it's just, you know, I can't believe that, you know, they could actually do better than this. They had to slow it down for the camera. You know, yeah. For us dummies <laughs> to, to, to watch it, lah, you know. You know, it's it's like uh, it's like you know how like like in the Queen's Gambit, Anya Taylor Joy had to like explain to her mother like simple things in chess. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it's like these these people are. It's like yeah, this is just like a roundhouse kick, you know, like and and a seven twenty and stuff like that. Uh, in insanity, right? But the Red Redemption, um, I said it was revolutionary, but to be fair, right, it, it wasn't so revolutionary so much as it brought back like the the older seventies Bruce Lee style of yeah. of fighting movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it started, like, and, and this is what it brought back, you know. Uh, and, and the Red Redemption was such a... It gained instant popularity, like a cult classic, almost instantly, right? You know, yeah. It was bruising, it was taut, it was a tough act to follow, which makes it all the more beguiling, right? That its sequel, The Raid 2 Barandal, is actually grander and superior in every conceivable way. Yeah. Um, the Raid 1 was a simple fight story that involved gangsters. Mm-hmm. The Raid 2... Okay, number one. <laughs> they, without even getting to the gangsters, right? The fight scenes actually got better. Oh, man. It was, it was more brutal. It was longer. And it was more complexly choreographed. Yeah. Number two, the story became grander too. Mm-hmm. The Raid 2 is an entirely 
uh, classical gangster epic. Uh, in fact, the Raid 2 actually owes a lot to Infernal Affairs. The, yep. whole, <laughs> the, the, the whole undercover story, actually, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it contains, uh, uh, I mean, clearly it's finale and, and like third act is not at all similar to Infernal Affairs. Because mm-hmm. you have like uh, Rama yeah. fucking kicking ass in a warehouse, you know. But <laughs> it, it's, it's a feat that raises the bar for ma- modern action filmmaking. It's, it's also a feat that raises the bar for gangster filmmaking because it yeah. shows that gangster films don't have to be a particular certain style. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you can do the un- undercover story, you can do the spy story, but you can you can wrap it up in different flavors. You know, and, and in, in this case, the flavor is is the uh, the flourish is the fights. Uh. Yeah. Um. And and the read too is just so much better in every way because you know the the, the story gives you a great greater insight uh, and emotional depth into all of his characters um the army of fucks are no mm. longer just like i mean okay like there are a lot of like faceless like <laughs> um jobbers who just get beat up you know yeah. but there's so many like larger than life villains you know uh there is like baseball bat boy and hammer <laughs> uh and and like the the guy with the sickle oh um, man yeah I'm sorry, I don't know any of the names, but like you all, if you've seen the film, you know who I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> they're so they're so memorable, you know those trio of assassins. Yeah. Um, they are so outlandish that they could cons- comfortably reside in like the pages of manga, you know. Mm. Um, and, and in that way, like it, this reminds me of like more of a um, uh, Infernal Affairs meets a Yakuza, uh, gangster films because yeah. Yakuza, Yakuza gangster films are like this, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just like unstoppable berserkers everywhere um they even have like a great car chase scene that again shows like you know people like michael bay how you do car chase scenes yeah. again showing us everything inside the car outside the car ridiculous stunt work practical work you know mm-hmm. no cgi at all um it, it's so great and then there's the classical story of you know uh crime lords uh getting into a local getting into a syndicate going undercover being in prison uh and and everything like it feels it feels very classical but at the same time like freshened up because yeah. it's such a mix of genres too you know mm-hmm. um did, did, did you did you feel similar to me that the raid too uh with his action set pieces and his grander scale and his more complex storytelling was superior to the raid one absolutely i think yeah. from the onset right um just with the just with a couple of opening sequences itself it is you can feel that the quality is better because the quality of acting is better Yeah, the dialogue is better. There's more focus on the characters as well, right? Personal stakes, right? Yeah. Mm, but yes, exactly. And the raid too feels like the movie that Gareth Evers wanted to make, but he had mm-hmm. to cut his teeth to see if all that martial arts and the camera work and 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 all that action, right, could be done and would be accepted. And then he just tacked on like all the rest of the stuff on top of that to make the raid too. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and it is it is it's very telling. It is so much. I mean, it's it it is different, but it is objectively better, right? As mm-hmm. a movie overall, uh, just like upping the stakes in every single category possible when it comes to filmmaking. Um, yeah, and it's just it's just incredibly enjoyable. Like, there's no one point in time I feel uh, where the pacing drops off. Right, you can have this like long kind of like uh, scenery chewing moments where there's like some intense dialogue going on but you don't feel that right like the parts where the character and the plot play out feel as dense and as tense and as well measured as the fight scenes which Mm is a feat in and of itself like so many films struggle with that and for that to come out of the Raid 2 it's just like incredible yeah you know um 
director is uh, one of my favorite films of the 2010s. Mm. Uh, and, and it says a lot because there have been a lot of great uh, films of the 2010s, you know. Um, and it's, uh, and we, we, we praise the, the fighting a lot, and as we should. The choreography is some amazing and some of the most brutal, exhausting. To be honest, I, I felt exhausted watching the <laughs> yeah. too. I always feel like I, I just went for like 2.4 or something, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and Rama takes damage that I think like Wolverine would, would squirm at and he just keeps on fucking going. Yeah, know? it's crazy. <laughs> you know? uh, great rogues gallery, great story. Uh, the action set pieces are just... The, the greatest I've ever seen, I think, mm-hmm. in cinematic history, you know. Mm-hmm. But that is not to suggest that the film's pleasures only exist when the fists are swinging or when bats are swinging or hammers are swinging. Yeah. Like, I think Gareth Evans, the brilliance of Ray 2 is that he finally got to construct an elegant narrative around the carnage, you know. He, uh, he extrapolates, you know, this labyrinth plot from the first film's very spare scenario um, and handles the intrigue with, with crystalline clarity. Like, you never get lost in the labyrinth plotting, you know. Yeah. Um, Iko Uwais, uh is a great martial artist. Uh, he's a great stuntman. Uh, but in this, he gets to show that he's also a great actor. You know, with his mm-hmm. with his like haunted eyes, his no bullshit dignity. You yeah. know, he portrays Rama as like a decent man who's slowly losing himself to the barbarism that he's constantly forced to sub uh, to to enact and, and the barbarism that he's submerged in. You know? Yeah. Um, great stuff. You know. Um, uh, Rama's personal stakes in the Raid 2 is one of the key elements that makes the Raid 2 superior to Raid 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every, everyone does it, you know. Perhaps the only uh, the only downside to the Raid 2 is that they recasted Mad Dog from the, the Raid 1 yeah. as someone else, which, which uh, destroyed a bit of uh, disbelief, a mm-hmm. sense of, uh, the suspension of disbelief. But other than that, it's almost a perfect film. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it is. And like, honestly, you don't need yeah. to watch the Raid 1. Right, mm. like there's absolutely no need for that. Um, although you should, like. although you should, you should, <laughs> yeah. but you know, there's no need. There's no need for it within this duology. Like the rate two stands very well on its own. Um, yeah, but yeah, the, I think there's something to be said. Like with the just these two um, trilogy slash duology. Actually, isn't mm-hmm. there a rate three? Uh, no, there isn't a rate three. At least not yet. Okay, right. Because I I remember reading something about it. But but anyways, like with Inferno Affairs and and with um the rate. Uh, mm-hmm. the two films from the way I found something very interesting in my own kind of like personal viewing experiences right like 90% of the stuff that we talk about and we review on, on genre and on the whole is in English language speaking stuff yep. um, and for some reason I think it's because specifically Inferno Affairs is in Kanto which I kind of grew up listening to and mm-hmm. watching a lot of Kanto films and the fact that the rate is in Bahasa Indonesia uh, yeah. there was something extremely comforting about hearing those things and you at the same time you also understand that there are there are nuances within the language and expression of that language in mm. both of these films that you don't get with english language films right yeah uh, and it is it it added an extra dimension for me personally um just in terms of the enjoyment of it all it was both comforting and at the same time very rich just because mm. like these are things that I haven't been, you know, um, keeping up with or watching um, with enough frequency to yeah. to to feel kind of like numb to, right? Whereas, like, mm-hmm. you know, everything else is in English um, at this point in time. Uh, yeah. And for those to be applied to gangster films, right? Like, there is there is I, I, there are certain things in the way that when especially when they curse, right, mm. or they use like specific uh, nomenclature to gangster 
the gangster world into gangsterism that is just like so eclectic and I, I kind of like mm. love it because it comes with a degree of like spite um, mm. and, 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 and the threat of violence that you know uh, is, is not something that you're going to get um, from an English gangster film for example uh, but we, we can we can like kind of discuss that a bit more I think in both the two upcoming topics yeah, yeah, well. definitely. You know, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I first noticed in in the raid one, like, like one of the opening scenes, like, uh, you know, because I, I watched, I watched it on rewatched it on Netflix, where so the subtitles were there, right? Mm. You know? Um, like a character scolding another character, like Anjing, you know, like, um, <laughs> but uh, a translation, direct translation would be, you know, you dog, which just doesn't come across. Nope. So, so yeah. the translation was like you fucker, yeah. Uh, which, which I, I think okay lah, like it, it translates the intention well enough, but it's but not. It's just, <laughs> Yeah, it's not not really, right? Yeah, it's not really. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like some of the things, like in Infernal Affairs, right? Some of the things that they say are absolutely like filthy, right? Yeah. It being Hong Kong at all, right? But it's still delivered in that kind of like Cantonese that, you know, uh, has, has its own cadence, has its own kind of poetry with him, but it's absolutely filthy. And mm. um, the subtitles never capture that uh, yeah. in the fullness of what they're trying to convey, which is kind of insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, if you've ever been to Hong Kong, the Cantonese language is one of the most, like, no offense to y'all, but it's, like, a very aggressive language. Yeah. Like, like super aggressive. And, like, it doesn't come across uh, with, in the English subtitles, uh, you yeah. know, the intonations and everything and the nuances of what they mean, you know. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, the, the raid is just such a, this opulent symphony of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the raid, too, is this same similar opulent symphony of violence, like, paired up with an in- entirely different, a new orchestra that is playing with the old <laughs> orchestra. Yeah. You know, but the new orchestra is playing like classical stuff, you know. Like, like the fighting is like a jazz orchestra and yeah. like the classical stuff, you know, the gangster stuff is like a classical orchestra. And the fact that they, they go together so well, uh, it makes for just grandness, like, like absolute greatness. The rate to burn down is just mwah, chef's kiss. One yeah. of my favorites of all time, you know. Uh, let's move on to... We said it was an English language film, but to be honest, um, Eastern Promises is half Russian language, mostly yeah. Russian actually. You know, mostly more, Russian, most, yes. It, although it's set in London, lah, um, it is directed by famed body horror author David Cronenberg. The last thing I would ever have expected from David Cronenberg is to do a gangster <laughs> film. You know, the guy who did The Fly, you know, and mm. and other like sci-fi body horror, uh, and it's written by a, a guy called Stephen Knight who at that point, when this film was released in 2007, was a nobody. But yep. after Eastern Promises, Stephen Knight, may ha- you may have heard of his show, uh, Peaky Blinders, which is probably like <laughs> the biggest gangster like TV show of, of all time. At least at this point in time, you know. So Eastern Promises like, uh, was a revitalization of David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen, uh, and the, the rise to fame of Stephen Knight. You know? uh, it follows a mysterious and charismatic Russian-born uh, gangster named Nikolai Luzhin, who, who pretends that he is the driver uh, for one of London's most notorious organized crime families from Eastern Europe. You know, the family is part of the Vori Zakone, uh criminal brotherhood. Uh, and it's just a, a riveting di- deep dive into a different type of gangster culture, the, the Russian mafia type of gangster culture, you yeah. know, um, which is... Different from Italian mafiosos and different from Yakuza and triads, they have their own code of honor, they have their own rituals, they have their own style, uh, and that's interesting to watch here. Uh, but I think what makes Eastern Promises a bit more 
say psychologically intriguing mm-hmm. than the Raid or Inter- uh, Inferno Affairs films. Like, I'm, this is Apple's Oranges. I'm not saying one is better than another. Yeah. But I'm saying like the USP of Eastern Promises is like the this. Uh, it's a more psychological deep dive into the 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 moral cost. Uh, the the cost in your soul uh, of violence. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, and and what it is to live inside a world where you transgress all the time, you know. Yeah. Like, what is the line you draw? Uh, and 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 where should it be? You know, when when you've done so much evil, you know, like, where do you stop? Where do you begin? Uh, it's it's great, lah. Um. Well, ha- when do you first see Eastern Promises? And and what, what do you think of it at the first time? You know, because I haven't rewatched the movie in almost ten years. Yeah. And the only thing I remember of Eastern Promises was the opening scene where a guy in a barbershop gets his cut slit, uh, where, where his his throat gets slit open, uh-huh. which is class, which is classic Cronenberg body yeah. horror done, <laughs> done in done in a gangster style, you know. Um, what what about you, man? Uh, I watched Eastern Promises in the cinema, and I remember this very clearly because when I walked out, I was r- still reeling from the bathroom fight scene. Mm, yeah. Right, like the I mean, like in true Cronenberg style, and maybe I think probably one of the most visceral fight scenes that he's ever done. In, in totality. Uh, yeah. I think that uh, I went to watch this because um, prior to that, I had just caught History of Violence. Oh, which, oh again, an- another Cronenberg um, and Mortensen team up. Yeah, so I really, really kind of enjoyed that. And I was very, very curious uh, by the premise of Eastern Promises and the fact that it was both uh, Viggo Mortensen and Cronenberg again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a uh, Russian ma- mafia film with these two? Okay, let's let's kind of like see where this goes. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I went into that and, you know, I, I mean, honestly, how many people know roles that Viggo Mortensen has done outside of being Aragon, right? Correct. Uh, you know, and, and having seen kind of like History of Violence, which was one of the first few non-Lord of the Rings stuff that I saw, I seen, him, I was like, okay, you know, I, I think this should mm. be pretty interesting. So I mm. go in, no stranger to Cronenberg, um, not really a stranger to Viggo Mortensen, but like kind of came out with just like, oh my God. Like Cronenberg's thing really <laughs> works for gangster films, like yeah. it really, really does. Like that whole body horror, you know, the uh, how gory and visceral it is. Like it, 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 it portrays um the life of someone who's in the mafia in a very real way. It, you know, it de glamorizes it. Right? Yeah, it de glamorizes it, and like on the one hand, you're shocked by what you're seeing, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, you're just like, but. It, that is what it is, right? Like, that is literally what it is when, you know, you're slitting a guy's throat, when you're, like, uh, removing his fingers so that, you know, he can't be identified, you know, yeah. when you're stabbing someone with a shift. Like, that's exactly what that would look like, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, in real life, if if, if just somewhat more stylized. Yeah, yeah, uh, but a li- just a little bit more stylized. Yeah, just know? a little bit more stylized, but it works so well. And I think, like, the reason why Eastern Promises story works is the fact that it is contrasted against this violence, right? It is something mm-hmm. that within uh, for the audience, you never become numb to throughout the entirety of the movie, right? Mm. But the fact is, every character, especially Nikolai, um, is something that he has to either dish out or endure or suffer through. Uh, with a strange kind of stoicism that is necessary for him to survive the situation mm-hmm. that he's in, right? And that kind of like gap between those two things um, just like makes it for a fascinating character study. Yeah. Uh, a- a- as far as it goes, not not just with Nikolai, but with, with Kirill or with Seymour. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if anything, like um, Anna, who's played by, what's her face? Naomi Watts. By Naomi Watts, is kind of like a, 
uh, whatever on mm-hmm. the on the sidelines, you know. Uh, it's not really her story. She doesn't really quite fit in that. Um, mm. and, and upon rewatching this recently, I, I, I still don't really understand uh, mm. what her, the point of her there uh, being is. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, like, it's just kind of like interesting to see how Cronenberg has taken something that is so iconic to his style and mm-hmm. made it work for something that I didn't expect him to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, really, like, agree 100% with everything. Uh. Um, Viggo Mortensen has a long and storied career, of course, best known as Aragorn, as you mentioned, you know. Um, I 100% believed in this film that he was Russian. Yeah, absolutely. Like, 100%. <laughs> he was so immersive in his role yeah. that I believed he was Nikolai. Like, it's rare for me to see, and, like, Aragorn, you know, it's when a character plays a, uh, someone as distinctive as like an Aragorn or a Harry Potter or, or Spider-Man or something like that, right? Yeah. You know, you always think of them as that. But this role was so like transformative that I didn't see Aragorn at all, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to do lah when you're Viggo Mortensen and you're known as Aragorn. You know? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's freaking fantastic, you know. Uh, and and number two, like like you said, like I think the point of Naomi uh, Naomi Watts's character was to show um, uh, Nikolai. Uh, the human cost of it, like a normal person, what a normal person thinks, you know, a, a moral compass for him. Yeah. Because he has been so far outside of normalcy, you know, or what people consider decent uh, life, you know, mm-hmm. that he, he may have forgotten what it is, you know. Um, and I think that's what Naomi Watts is there for, like, to show him, you know, like, uh, you may have got, grown stoic yeah. to it, you may, you may have grown numb to it, you know, but there are real lives and real costs, you know. Um, yeah, the, the violence in the bathroom fight scene where he fights off like a couple of uh, Chechen gangsters uh, naked, you know, with his yeah. like, dick swinging uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the barbershop where throats are being slit. They are very visceral, realistic instances of just the ugliness of this type of violence. Like, there's no like, you know, Big Ben, uh, swing music nope. playing behind it like in Scorsese films. There is no like, I would say, okay, like the read is more brutal, but it's just so cool in how yeah. it's being done that you, you lose the the morality of it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in, uh, similar to Inferno Affairs, like, you know, the devs and all are like, oh, what a cool twist, you know. But you don't actually feel the moral and ethical cost of it, you know. Um, this is, these are what gangsters do. They murder. Uh, they, they run prostitution. They run human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And they are, and it's, the, the cost of it, like the human cost of it is so overwhelmingly dark mm. and brutal, you know. Um, especially when you delve into the stories of like the, the prostitutes being trafficked, right? Which yeah. Is, Pretty much the the main uh catalyst for for Eastern Promises plot, that it just feels so ugly that you can't glamorize this world like, yeah. and you, nor should you you know. Um, and Eastern Promises came at a specific time, uh, which um I think the the Sopranos sort of kick kick started it like the deglamorization of the gangster you know. Yeah. Um, I I vividly remember like watching the Sopranos. That one of the first things that that struck out to me is that the Sopranos was entirely a deconstruction of the of the genre you know deaths were ugly deaths were difficult deaths were brutal and it, they never ever felt cool yeah know? um and and that's what i i loved about eastern promises like just the ugliness of it the the unwillingness to to throw a polish and a shine and a sheen on on this hidden underworld like, that has been so glamorized by so many gangster films so i mm-hmm. think cronenberg is more interested in telling stories about the uh, think stories about the characters who live in this world and what it must feel for them and what yeah. uh and what it must cost them like it costs them their soul it costs them their humanity how numb and stoic they must become to to not only survive but thrive in this world you know um 
and in even like you know smaller things like Semyon is such a Semyon is the is the kid right is the son right Oh no that that's Kirill uh Samuel Kirill is is the father yeah I'm sorry yeah yeah like like with, with Kirill for example he's such a he's the standard like you know like in in every gangster movie there's like the the fucking like uh the prince uh, the, yeah. the prince gangster who's just such a little bitch you know but then like in the end you end up feeling for him also because like he doesn't even really want to be here he can't even embrace his own sexuality you know because he'll get him killed or yeah. get him disowned you know so you know it's it's great. Like I, 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 I like the little like wrinkles that each character has, and I like the more psychological uh, aspect to this. Like, the it, it is visceral. It is it is uh the the story is good, mm. but mostly it's a very character driven psychological story. Like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking yeah. of Kiro, right? Vincent Cassell just has that face. Mm. You know, like it's unfortunate that every time I see his face, I'm just like, okay, bad guy. Uh, mm. you know. Uh, so it's fascinating here. Uh, especially as Kiro, where he kind of like breaks down, right? Like at the beginning, you know, he's like this, you know, everything you expect from a wayward, like kind of like prince who can't get anything right and, and, and you know, uh, all the trimmings that come with that. So yeah. his performance, especially towards the, the third act of the movie, when everything kind of like comes to a fall and then things start breaking down and he becomes emotional and then he starts questioning his own, uh, you know, moral quandaries within this world that he's basically um, been born into is yeah. fantastic. Very, very honestly. Yeah. Like, the scene by the river with the baby, damn. Like, mm. that was really, really good on his side. And, I mean, he is a great actor overall. But, you know, it's so easy because of the roles, the kind of roles that he's played over the years, mm. for him to be kind of typecast today, that you often kind of forget that he has a very wide range as an actor yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, like um, Westworld season three casted Vincent Cassell as Vincent Cassell's uh type, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like probably the, the script from like Jonathan Nolan was like, "You're playing a Vincent Cassell type." It's like, okay, I can do that. Sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in most anything like Black Swan, whatever, whatever you want to name that he's been in, right? It's always like a variation of the character he's always played, and it's mm. nice to see moments when that stereotype is broken. Cronenberg you know. uh, gives him more. Yeah, you know? he definitely does. Cronenberg um, said in an interview, which I, I read like in, in the lead up to this podcast, he said that, like, um, I realize that I'm not interested in the mechanics of the mob, uh, but, but he's interested in criminality. Yeah. The pe- people who live in a state of perpetual transgression, that is interesting. And it's, it's interesting to me as well, you know. Um, what the director, Cronenberg, and writer Stephen Knight do here is not unfold the plot, but I think like unfold the skin of a hidden world, you know. Um, their story puts characters uh, at perpetual moral tests, you know, to see like what level of evil are you? Are you willing to cross this line? Are you willing to cross that line, you know? Um, and they live in such a hermetically sealed world where their own code of honor and values are so different from... Naomi Watts' world, which is our world, you know, like yeah. the, the, the normal world. Like, what happens when a cocoon is bre- breached, you know, via an emotional connection with, with no- Naomi Watts? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's good stuff, man. I, f- I think, like, one of, like, more Cronenberg's more under-regarded films, you mm. know, considering he's done so many, like, iconic movies, right? Like, yeah. The Promises, I think, belongs up there with the best of his uh, filmography. Yeah, definitely. I, and just because it's something that's so different, mm. but works so well. Yeah. 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 Uh, fantastic film. Uh, Eastern Promises, a uh, great deep dive into uh, the Russian mafia world. Uh, and, you know, if you've only seen like um, a more caricature version of it, like say in Arrow, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is a good way for you to, 
to get into it. Uh, finally, uh, I want to talk about something like very a very small film that I've loved for so long, ever since like I went to Vegas in 2012, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and I watched Animal Kingdom, which did not come to Singapore cinemas, I, I realized. Mm. I watched Animal Kingdom on a plane, uh, <laughs> randomly, you know. Yeah. Um, I even... Uh, I even like mistakenly clicked it because Animal Kingdom was next to um, a different Animal Kingdom. I wanted to watch uh, lit- a literal Net Geo documentary about animals. <laughs> Animal King- so like I clicked Animal Kingdom and then like I was just so hypnotized by it that I, I kept watching to the end. Like, and then I was blown away. It's like, where did this film come from? Like, you know, I, I recognized the actors in it. You know, I had seen Memento at the time, so I knew I knew who um fuck, I forgot his name. <laughs> the Memento guy uh, <laughs> was in it, you know. Yeah. So like I was like, how have I never heard of this? And how is like no one I know have ever heard of it too? Uh, and then recently the Animal Kingdom TV show came out, and then whenever I talk about Animal Kingdom, people always like think of that. I'm like I'm just so disappointed. Oh, so I'm here to talk about the original Animal Kingdom, uh, an Australian film uh, from 2010 uh, that is just uh, an absolutely distinctive, ominous, hypnotic work of cinema mm-hmm. uh, and one of the best Australian uh, films I've ever seen. Guy Pierce is his name. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Funny God. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> um, Animal Kingdom tells the story of a 70-year-old kid named Jay uh, uh, as he navigates you know, his survival amidst uh, this uh, explosive criminal family uh, that he's born into uh, and also follows Guy Pierce, who plays a detective who thinks he can save him. Mm. Um, what's interesting about Animal Kingdom is that uh, it is based on a on a real life true story of a, of an Australian crime family, an Australian mob family, uh, which I found um, it it blew my mind. I did it's like City of God, right? Like I didn't I did not realize that this this is based on a real thing. So um, it was written by a guy called David Michaud, uh, and the script was inspired by real rip from the headline events that involved the Pettengill criminal family over in Melbourne, Australia, um, and. Upon reading stories about the Pettingill criminal family, um, I realized that most of the scenes in Animal Kingdom were essentially like kind of almost reenactments yeah. of real stuff that happens, uh, which adds a level of realness to Animal Kingdom that most gangster films don't have. Uh, you know, this, this is a kind of new noir crime drama gangster film uh, that is just so rooted in darkness and realism and grittiness uh, that, is, that is very rare like, and it's very unstylized also you know it stars Ben Mendelsohn mm-hmm. before before I knew who he was it stars Joe Edgerton before I knew who he was Guy Pierce as I mentioned um, Jackie Weaver as the matriarch I think kind of st- steals the show oh, a bit oh man you know? she's so good right yeah mm-hmm. um, g- give me your thoughts on, on Animal Kingdom I think I, I've, I've talked enough about it yeah so I have absolutely no idea that this uh, thing existed Mm. Um. So yeah, when you first when you first recommended it, okay, like we're gonna we're gonna check this out. We're gonna talk about it. Um. I was just like, what is this film? Why have I never heard of it before? Right. Not that I'm like super up to date with Australian cinema or anything. Um. Mm-hmm. So going into it, I'm, I I just did a brief search just to kind of see what it's about. Uh. You know, did a a, a couple of like uh, clicking a couple of links to go see what the actual family is based on and what they were about and so on and so forth. Um, I was like, okay, now this seems pretty interesting. What I got in the end when I finally sat down to watch it was a totally different pace and tone of movie than what I expected it to be. Mm. Um, it is quiet and reserved and measured, uh, and disturbingly so. Mm. Um, and I wasn't expecting that given 
in this particular time frame, all the gangster movies that I've been watching for us to talk about today, like mm-hmm. it is by far one it, the most different in terms of like the way that it is told. Yeah. Uh, and it is mesmerizing, surprisingly. Like I, I would have thought, uh, well, uh, or rather I did think like five minutes in, okay, I'm not sure if, you know, this is going to be able to kind of like keep my attention for the whole duration of the movie itself. But mm-hmm. I was completely wrong. There is something unnerving and constantly tensioned about the way that it unfolds. Uh, especially, I think, in the beginning when, you know, they're doing the kind of like the world building. They tell you just enough to hint at the criminal, uh, the criminal element in this particular family, but they never show you any of it. Yeah, and then as we go along, we still don't see much of it, you know. But they talk about it, right? And then you see how the talk affects the actions of people uh, involved in that conversation, right? And then that slowly cascades into the third act and all the the action that takes place in that. And I think yeah. it's such a smart way to kind of go about it, right? Like you keep the reader hooked just because you snag them at the beginning with this, just like, oh, okay, how is this like gangster in any way? Mm-hmm. Right, but then you tease that you know this is the this is the the behind the scenes, right? This is the day the day to day slice of life of the of of the criminal, yes. um, and yeah. then you slowly work in the details of that without ever showing it, and mm-hmm. you only show the action as consequence for mm-hmm. their criminal acts, um, and that's like it's it's brilliant. It is it. I was absolutely taken by how it unfolded. Um, you know, over the, what was it, like slightly less than two hours? Um, yeah, an that, hour 40 about. Yeah, and I was just like, wow. Like, that's really masterful storytelling. And I think armed with the fact of having done some prior research about, what's the family's name called again? Pettingill. Yeah, the Pettingill family. And just like reading some of the headlines involving them. Like having that mm-hmm. at the back of my mind, knowing mm-hmm. that this was what was based on that. And having it in, unfold in this particular way, I was just like, what? You know, so I mean, I feel like I, I, I've, I've been saying it a lot for stuff that we we're reviewing on Behold, but mm-hmm. like, I, I was taken by surprise. I really did not expect it to be as engaging as it turned out to be after my first five minutes. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's this like, um, The Godfather, right, was this like dark rites of passage story, right, that mixes in like Shakespearean drama. You know? mm. um, and in a way, Animal Kingdom is similar to that, but it is so much more low key so much more artful, yeah. so much more contemplative. Uh, uh, it, there is no level of coolness to, um, um, to Amer- uh, I mean, Animal Kingdom at all. You know, it, it, it strips away cool. Yeah. You know, um, even more so than Eastern Promises because Eastern Promises did have a level of cool. Like Viggo Mortensen and, you know, it's <laughs> in the end still fucking cool. Uh, yeah. His shades <laughs> and his trench coat and everything. You know? but, but this is just like, a, a, almost like, as his title implies, like a, a Darwinian, um, mm. survival of the fittest case study, you know, yeah. or survival of the shrewdest like, in this case, you know, a group portrait of, of ru- a ruthless predator family in the underworld of Melbourne, la, a country that is not known for crime families or gangsters, you know. Yeah. It is a gritty, gut-churning crime thriller that is based on a true story and I think its greatness lies in its unwavering fidelity to its understanding of human nature mm-hmm. and how it's tied into the, the almost primal laws of the wild, uh, the, as, as you mentioned, the, as I mentioned, the survival of the of the fittest, right? Yeah. The, the animal kingdom, you know, like the, the dead mama by, played by uh, Jackie Weaver, the matriarch of the family, you know, it's, 
at first the nicest member of the family. Oh man! But then, like you know, <laughs> you, you you see that she is ready to eat her young. You know, the 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 brothers are braggadocious. Uh, but none um none of them are more disturbing than Ben Mendelsohn's performance in here. Mm, yeah. Um, he, he is not muscular or physical, but there's just like he looks off, right? You know, he always yeah. looks off. Like he's so unpredictable. He brings like a manic like. Uh, Joker as chaos energy, to yeah. it, you know, mm. that always keeps me unsettled. You know, mm. um, he the, the way he looks at like um Jay's girlfriend and just the the way he talks. There's always something so menacing, even when he yeah. utters the nicest yeah. things. He's just so scary, it, you know. It, I think, especially with the first time we see him on screen, right, like in the kitchen, yeah, where he just comes into the back door. I was like who the fuck is this and why is he so terrifying? And then you realize that just before that, he talks about, you know, Jay talks about Pope and how he doesn't like Uncle Pope, uh, mm-hmm. right? And I'm just like, holy shit, okay, I totally get you, boy. I understand why you don't like this guy. Because yeah. for that, like, 30 seconds where he doesn't say a damn thing and they're mm-hmm. just staring at each other on the kitchen amidst all the glass on the floor, it's mm-hmm. absolutely unnerving. Yeah. And he, he manages to carry that throughout every single interaction with anybody um, for the rest of the movie, which is which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, Pope is such a great villain in the story, also. But it, it's also a story about the rise of Jayla, mm. uh, and about like he's conflicted. Does he want to be in this or does he not? And he, if he is in this, you know, he's going to have to be the most ruthless of them all. Uh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's such a great uh, contemplative drama with a high startlement quotient. Yeah, uh, and I feel like the naturalistic style that David Michaud employs. Uh, not only adds to the sense of dread, but the naturalistic style also uh, adds to the sense of shock when violence does happen, you know, because mm. um, violence is, unlike the other gangster movies that we've seen, you know, violence in real life is not common, you know. Yeah. Violence happens like a car crash, you know. It's just suddenly, and it happens without reason, and it happens uh, in, in a way that, like, absolutely shocks you and numbs you, you know. Mm. Uh, and in this movie, there are three or four instances of violence that just took me off guard, you know. Just because of its uh, its, its naturalistic style. Yeah. Like, when it happens, it's just like, whoa, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the first instance of violence is like the key turning point of the movie, right? Like in the car with the, with the cops. Yep. Yeah, like that absolutely was just like, where in the world did that come from, right? Um, because prior to that, you don't get any of that. Like you get, you get the sense that things might get violent. You get the threat of it, like kind of just hovering over the movie itself. But mm-hmm. until that point, with how sudden it is and 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 how bloody it is, and the fact that it is dealt and left to linger in your mind while everything else carries on is mm-hmm. mad. Like that. Psychological, the kind of psychological impact, the way that they frame violence in this film is, um, it's it's pretty terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. But because it's set against the tonality, this very even kind of tonality of yeah. the everyday and of mm-hmm. normality, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, that that contrast is is horrifying, I think. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's an extremely engaging as you try to feel. Uh, or Jay tries to feel his way through these two very extreme things. Exactly. I, I actually really enjoyed uh, the performance of Jay. He was 
it's such a difficult character to pull off because he's stoic. He's a bit of a cipher, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, like, I could always sense the confusion and the, and the moral uncertainty in him, uh, and it's it's crafted through like this very like. Uh, in fact, this entire movie is is, is a de- densely textured moral universe uh, that mm-hmm. that makes good use of the metaphor in its title, uh, you know. Uh, and and in this case, you know, the the animals are willing to each 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 other they're, mm. willing to eat. they're young uh, the performances are skilled almost uh, all around yep. it is uh, a great exploration of like the down and dirty side of, of humanity you know that is just you know the greed the suspicion the, the betrayal you know and it's portrayed with such brisk efficiency because it doesn't waste time on any unnecessary backstory yeah. it just plops you in um, I, I love that you said like slice of life earlier because like if not for the instances of violence it would have fit into like a previous episode of ours you know? yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's it totally so- would yeah, yeah, and and the the turns happen with such a brutal speed, and I guess that is a slice of life for what a gangster is, like you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, like the these vi- this violent acts. If you are a gangster living in real life, you know, you go about your daily life. Suddenly, you get shot. It's supposed to be shocking, like it's not supposed to be cool, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's brilliant. Like, uh, it's it's brutally unsentimental. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's. I wonder if there's a slice of life anime about a gangster. I need to do research about this. I feel oh, like yeah. I might. That is not the way of the house husband. <laughs> that that is not the way of the house husband. Even though, like, still, uh, I I don't know if you caught up with the um recent like they just released a bunch of chapters. Oh, not yet. Yeah, it's getting quite funny. It really, I mean, it was funny to begin with, but it's getting quite absurd rather. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, Animal Kingdom. I think, um, I think one last thought for me. Um, okay. Guy Pierce's delivery of the Animal Kingdom metaphor for which the show is named after. And yeah. the way that it plays out is absolutely mm-hmm. spot on, right? Mm-hmm. The delivery of that line, or those lines rather, and the way that it functions um, visually and, and, and uh, action-wise within the film is just like solid stuff. I love it when, when the movies can pull something like that off. Mm, I agree, you know. And just the really quiet way in the end when Jay uh, asserts uh, his dominance in the family. Oh, uh, just, just via a hug. To, to a woman that you know tried to have him killed, <laughs> yeah, uh, his, his, and his uh, grandmother somewhere. It's just brilliant, like, and it just shows like how brutal the the world of gangsters are. You yeah, know? It, it just it, it does conform to to our primordial uh, laws of the wild, uh, mm-hmm. just in, in in just in a very different way. Uh, yeah, so these are like some of the best uh, gangster films from all around the world. Perhaps one day. Uh, we'll get into you know the the famous ones uh, that they come out <laughs> of America, but like like I, like I said, I'm not I'm in no hurry to get to that because you know they are already so famous. You know? yeah. like, what what can, what can we say about the Godfather or Goodfellas that hasn't already been said, right? Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this is why we thought it take some time to to shout out like Inferno Affairs, which is big over in Asia but not big elsewhere. Yeah. Um, Animal Kingdom, I guarantee you, like no one who's listening to this right now has heard of it. Um, Eastern Promises, uh, one of Cronenberg's most underrated films. You know. Uh, and of course, the the Raid duology, uh, which is a cult classic, but by no means a mainstream blockbuster at all. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, despite the fact that it has revolutionized Hollywood action filmmaking. And so all four of these, highly recommended. Go check them out. Yep. Um, and I like that like we picked like, four films that are a bit varying in tone mm. uh, and styles. Uh, despite the fact that I think all four films um, involved undercover people, oh, which oh, is just so... Jay was, you know, um, oh, going, well, yeah. was going to testify too. Um, and I don't want to spoil Eastern Promises, uh, so I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> yeah. to give away that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, but it just goes to show, like, like, the whole undercover trope is so... and It's, it's a part of the genre. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, earlier today, 
I was just yeah. thinking about like where do you kind of draw the line between what's a cop film and what's a gangster film, right? Who the protagonist is. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, for what we have here in particular, I think um, Infernal Affairs is the one where it's a bit the most grey. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I, I'm just wondering. And I think like going into the future, whenever we're watching like gangster stuff or, or cop stuff, I would really like to see where that line lies and mm. like what the exploration of that is, right? Because um, so many times like the cop side or the cop characters um the cop characters in these in these four kind of like franchises that we're talking about right like it is so blur for them you know uh are we reaching the point in time where criminality and and the law is so entwined that you can't really tell the difference between what's a cop story and what's a gangster story anymore hey well i'm glad you brought that up because i forgot to mention you know like in animal kingdom that uh, that that is exactly what they portray the cops as. That the cops are another gang. Yeah, the police is a gang. You know, like the the way the way they kill is very gangster like. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no, I I I'm I'm past the point where I don't believe that stuff like that happens or real. You know, it's yeah. just like there's so many headlines all the time. You know, mm-hmm. about cops doing shit like that. You know? So I, I'm I'm glad that you brought it up because like cop in in a certain sense like cop films are actually gangster films because they are like. Yeah, the most well-armed, uh, organized gang of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and Animal Kingdom actually like brutally portrayed that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so yeah. it's just it was just a thought that popped up today. You know, as as I was preparing my notes, I'm just like, huh, that's a like an interesting way to kind of like view it. Like as we mm-hmm. kind of move forward with what I don't know if there are any kind of like big gangster stuff coming out this year. Yeah. Um, but that would be a very interesting thing to kind of like track as we go along because you know, as as time goes by and 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 like with these four films or even <clears throat> um you know the classic american ones from before um that line keeps getting you know blur uh, mm-hmm. more and more blur so we'll see we'll see how that goes and, and maybe one day it'll just be one genre on its own you know yeah yeah um in in a few months time, maybe we'll do a sequel to this like, where we'll talk about gangster TV shows, which are, yeah. which, which is also a big genre. And I don't think you've seen The Sopranos, right? Which is something that is like so yeah, so uh, I seminal. I have watched um the first two seasons. Ah, okay. But yeah. I never got to the end, right? Mm. Because I uh, it uh, it was always on my list, but then mm. the end got spoiled for me, right? Like just because of the outcry of how it ended. Right, yeah. they just spoiled it for me. I'm just like, dude, fuck, man. Like, I, I usually am not big on spoilers, but with mm-hmm. an ending like that, like you can't, you know, I, it, it, uh, yeah, I, I just like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna live with what I've already watched and what I've enjoyed so far, and like not mm-hmm. get to that point so that I don't have to deal with the fact that I'm angry about being spoiled about a non-ending. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the Spinos ending is still being talked to today, you know, um, some people love it, some people hate it. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any particular strong feelings towards it. I actually liked it. Mm-hmm. I like the ending. Mm-hmm. I like that it was ambiguous. Uh, and speaking of, um, Sopranos prequel is actually uh, happening this year. The Many Saints of Newark, mm. which is being released on HBO Max, supposed to be in cinemas, but unfortunately, you know, uh, they put it on Max. So mm. I'm psyched for that because it doesn't follow Tony Soprano, it follows Tony's dad. Uh, and, and what we've heard about uh, Tony's upbringing, I think he's being played 
Tony in this film is being played by uh, James Gandolfini's son. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's going to be an interesting look uh, at the world. And I haven't seen like David Chase do something in so long mm-hmm. uh, that I'm like, very excited for it. Yeah, just, just speaking of uh, upcoming gangster films. you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely cool. I think maybe it's just about time for me to like finish The Sopranos and make up my own mind about how it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, gangster TV series, so many things to possibly talk about. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, we'll see where that goes. I'm excited for that. Yeah, yeah the, the, the Raid guy, Gareth Evans, has a show called Gangs of London out right now. Uh, not a great show, but okay. great fights in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Amazing fights. It's just like you have to sit through like 40 minutes of talking to get to like the fight scene. Oh, man. But then when the fight scene hits, it's like, okay, like, it was kind of worth it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has to be quite a fight scene because 40 minutes of dialogue is a lot, of, a lot to sit through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's like an hour-long show with like 40 minutes of just like the usual very tropey oh I've seen this on Peaky Blinders before mm. and then like it, it ends with like an absolute insane face fight it's like I've not seen this on Peaky Blinders before <laughs> are we doing Peaky Blinders? we could lah I mean we could, we, it's a bit unavoidable if we do like gangster um, a gangster topic yeah yeah okay okay yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get back to you guys about what we're doing exactly for that but you know we'll, we'll, we'll cover gangster TV shows one of these days yeah yeah definitely man uh, yeah uh, we'll be back with uh, GE40 Two, yeah, uh, in 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 a few weeks. Uh, big topics there. Love, death, and robot season two. Castlevania season two. Uh, coming out. Uh, the week that we are recording this, so we're excited about that. Uh, the underground railroad mm. is something that I'm super excited about as well. Uh, and the Mitchells versus the Machines. Uh, which is a very like, st- I'm so sad. That it's it's kind of got gotten buried by Netflix because it has yeah. like no no buzz at all. Yeah, but it's it's one of my favorite animated movies of the year so far, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I I think like uh, I was taken by surprise. I I mean I saw the trailer. It did come on on my algorithm for Netflix. I was like, oh, this looks pretty cute, right? And then I saved it on my list. And then when you brought it, I was like, oh yeah, I already saved it on my list. Why don't I check it out? Thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, we will definitely dive into that. I think like. Uh, as far as you know, family-friendly kind of like uh, animation goes, this might be the most relevant in terms mm. of the way that it is portrayed uh, and and yeah. it, its visual uh, and in style um, to to Gen Z, I guess, or, or even like kids who are younger than Gen Z. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into that as well. Yeah, and also to the Gen Xs and millennials who are raising Gen Z kids. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was talking about this with Hadi the other day. Like, we, we both like identified more with the dad, which made us feel fucking old. Well, considering that we are elder millennials, I'm not at all surprised. Yeah, um, yeah. I, we had a bridging generation now because at certain points, I could identify with the daughter and at certain points, I can identify with the dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we can definitely dive into our own conversation about that when we talk to that. Um, which is great, like, it was supposed to be quick hits, um, but it's it's meaty enough for us to like just move it as a main topic because you know it's really really good animation. I don't think it's being given as a, uh, enough exposure and credit as it should be. Yeah, yeah, um, hundred percent, man. Um, till then, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. No.